if if folks want to make their way to their tables, we'll uh, we'll get the morning underway. Great, thanks so much. Very good. Wow, that was quick. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to try to keep, uh, keep ourselves on schedule today. Uh, I do want to say uh, good morning and welcome to all of you uh, to our seventh annual uh, Leadership and Economics Summit. Uh, my name is Joe Connors. I'm with uh, Columbia Bank. And Columbia Bank is just thrilled to partner with Zenium HR, Geffen Mesher, and Brown and & Brown Northwest Insurance to bring this uh, event to all of you. And uh, when, we when we thought about it, this event goes back, gosh, over the last six years, uh, you had a lot of leadership behind the scenes with folks like Mike Rompa at Geffen Mesher, Bob Harding at Columbia Bank, Ann Donovan at Zenium HR, and more recently, uh, Jessica Getman with Brown & Brown Northwest Insurance saying we want to create an event where we bring business leaders together, we create or we provide relevant content, and we actually provide an environment for relationship building, and we don't charge anyone. So, you know, the firms have really found it important to uh, offer this every year. <laughs> so what, what we also did was we said, well, we need someone compelling, someone who's known, and that someone is John Mitchell. And we've really been fortunate to recruit John over the last number of years to be our keynote address uh, and provide an economic update. And then the concept evolved to having a, a CEO panel, because what we've learned is any leaders and organizations, if they get talking to each other, they all find that they're wrestling with similar issues. So having the economic update coupled with uh, some leadership uh, tips and, and uh, challenges discussed by the CEO panel was a good format. So thank you uh, for being here. So today, um, we've got John Mitchell. He will lead off the morning, uh, and he'll provide his economic update. And then what we're going to do is we will pivot into the CEO panel, and Ann Donovan from uh, Zenium HR will moderate that panel. There are colored note cards on all of your tables. Feel free, if you have questions, whether it's during John's presentation or the CEO panel, write those down, and we'll uh, send out a notice, and people will come around to scoop those questions from you so we get those uh, into the mix. Um, so we've got a one, we know we've got John as our keynote. We've got a wonderful panel of CEOs. We're always successful in recruiting talented folks. We've got Graciela Cowger, CEO of Schwabi Williamson and Wyatt. Uh, Kyle Stavig, CEO of Myers Containers. And uh, Sadie, gosh, I had Sadie. Sadie Lincoln, CEO of Bar 3. Sadie, I haven't met you yet, but... I know my wife is a frequent customer of yours, so um, she, if I showed you how many text messages I have that say, I'll be home late, I'm at bar three, pick up something for dinner, so uh, she's a big fan. So with that, uh, I say thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, you know, I've got John's bio here. 
It's impressive. It's intimidating. I'm not going to read the bio. John is a well-known, well-known Northwest gem, just a really one of the intellectual leaders and economic leaders of the area for many, many decades. We're in for a great treat. I am, I'm gonna share uh, one quote, because as I reach out to folks, you know, I'll, inv I'll inv invite folks by email or phone, and without doubt, the response that I get when they hear John Mitchell is presenting, I would love to come. John Mitchell is the only economist that I actually enjoy. So, so John, and John, that is without fail. So, so we really hope you enjoy today's event. Uh, again, on behalf of Geffen Mesher, Columbia Bank, Zenium uh, HR, and Brown and Brown Northwest Insurance, please join me in extending a warm welcome to John Mitchell. Thank you, John. Thanks. Is working okay? It's working okay. You know, I, I have to apologize. I had to send this in to Brandon on, uh, I sent it in late Sunday night, so I apologize that it's out of date uh, because the events that transpired in the last 48 hours in terms of monetary policy and stuff, I'm going to try to work some of that, work some of that in. Well, I'm entitled this Heading for 11, Confronting Limits and Upending History. You'll see where I'm, where I'm going with that. I mean, here we are. This is the 113th month of this expansion. Now, uh, I'd like to say the only advantage of getting older is at least for a while you get to remember more stuff. Okay? And I, I like to make the point, because I don't think a lot of young people understand the unusual nature of the, the duration of what we have experienced uh, this time. The U.S. economy accelerated in the 10th year of an upturn. That, that's not something we do very often. Job openings greater than the number of unemployed. You know, the Fed's put out data estimating number of unemployed and job openings. But since last spring, you know, the openings have been above the number who are classified as unemployed. That's not something that we've done very often. Sears bankrupt, and if there's somebody there, I'm from there, I'm sorry. Uh, but I was, Alan Greenspan has a new book out on capitalism in America, and I'm about halfway, halfway through it. But one of the things that it makes you realize is that you know, Sears was the Amazon of another time. I mean, the guy that started Sears, you know, he started as a railroad telegrapher and got the idea of putting stuff in warehouses and sending it out. And they had a description of a Sears warehouse early in the last century. And with a slight modification, it reads like a description of an Amazon warehouse today with all these little tracks taking packages around. I mean, it's the Amazon of another time. Trade conflicts in your adult life. I'm assuming there's nobody here that remembers the Great Depression. Uh, we've never seen this stuff. We haven't seen this stuff. The Fed, for years, they've had targets. 2% inflation, 
high levels of employment. We're done. Okay. They hit them. Okay. Uh, so what do they do next? Okay. And in less than five months, we're going to see some kind of Brexit. We're going to sit back and watch this part of the EU come apart. Okay. Not something they've done before. Okay. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Okay. We got a divided government. Okay. After the elections uh, earlier this month, of course, we have the Democratic House, Republican Senate, and no change in the White House. Okay. And for a lot of people, they are truly shocked by rising interest rates. I mean, young people have never seen rising rates. Remember, the federal funds rate, which is now two and a quarter percent. In July of 1981, it was 22.4%. Okay. And basically, we've had decades of declining interest rates. It's over. Okay. And you know, for a lot of people who some have come of age in, say, the last seven, eight, nine years, they have never seen rising rates before. A lot of you probably travel, as, as do I. And one of the fascinating things now is, do you see a lot of empty seats on airplanes? No. Okay. How about empty restaurants? Okay. Or do you have trouble getting a hotel room? We're watching, or traffic. Okay. We're watching or living in what one might call a flat-out world. Okay, lots of places are going and lots of industries are going as fast as they can. Okay, and you have problems with service, problems hiring, uh, problems hiring people, getting parts. I mean, we're running hot. Running hot in the 10th year of an upturn. Seven months to go. Okay, there's business, the long business cycle expansions, there is only one in the American business cycle history longer than this one, from 1991 to 2001. That was 120 months. Okay, this weekend we get to the 114th month. So we'll almost be there. By June of next year, this will be the longest upturn in American history, and I suspect that we will, break, we will break that record. We broke through past the 60s, past the 80s. Okay, we're almost there. It's remarkable. We had a new GDP number come out this week. Thank God it didn't, the headline number didn't change, so it slides not wrong. Uh, but what I want you to do is, is look at that. There's quarterly GDP growth rates going back the first quarter of 2016. The economy turned in 2009, and since that point in time, after the turn, the growth rate was sluggish. It was not the normal kind of rebound that you would have expected from a serious recession. But look, something seems to have happened. Okay, look at after the first quarter of 2017, those growth rates are higher. Okay, now, interesting question. Is that a trend change? Or is it aberration? Is it just some temporary mix of policy that we have at the moment? But something's happened that the growth rate is higher. Okay. Now, this slide's wrong. 
because new numbers came out Tuesday. But it's not wrong enough to change, okay? The, what I, nobody's gonna remember the specific numbers, but what I want you to see is what's going on. This is the contributions to the change in output in the third, the, the third quarter. The big number down on the bottom is consumption. GDP growth, uh, GDP growth rate was 3.5%. More than 2.5% is from consumer spending. Consumer spending is very strong. Rising, rising wages, falling gasoline, uh, falling gasoline prices, that sort of thing. Rising employment. Consumer spending is very strong. We had a big run-up in inventory. Okay. The previous quarter, we'd had a big decline in inventory. That was a drag. Well, you knew that was going to be reversed the, next, reversed the next quarter, and we saw it. The troubling stuff, which I'll talk about later, is we had some weakness on non-residential construction. Equipment spending wasn't all that strong. Housing was down. Okay, and I'll talk more about, that, more about that later. The trade stuff is all messed up because of the tariffs or the threats of tariffs. Uh, you see people uh, pushing exports in the previous quarter to get them out before the tariffs, the retaliatory tar tariffs went into, went into effect and really strange patterns on imports related to trying to meet, trying to meet deadlines but, or beat deadlines. But the, pro but the basic story is we continued, we continued to grow. You'll notice state and local and federal making a positive, uh, a positive contribution. You had big, you've had big increases in federal spending, a lot of it in the, def uh, the defense side. Okay. But we continue to grow. But the key thing, watch that consumption. From an employment perspective, these are the monthly changes in payroll employment. Okay, we'll get another number uh, this Friday. This goes back to January of 2017. The key thing is every single month is up. Okay, every single month is up. Unemployment rate at 3.7. That's basically a 49-year low. Okay, 3.7%. Since the trough in employment, which was in February of 2010, 20 million increase in jobs since that point in time, okay? Remarkable, okay? In the last release, okay, in the October release, we saw an acceleration in hourly earnings year over year at 3.1%. That's been one of the sort of interesting aspects of this upturn. If you've seen relatively sluggish growth okay, in hourly earnings. There's other sets of data from the Atlanta Fed, for example, that show they look at the same people one year apart, okay, and, you know, incomes are rising much faster. There was a study done out, out of the Oregon Department of Employment using payroll data, looking at the same individuals one year apart, and it showed a pattern of wage growth in ex of about 5% a year. So, I mean, I think that, that number is not fully descriptive of what's going on. I and mean, it's moved up, uh, but I think reality may see wages rising more rapidly than that. I'm always looking around for signs of the tight labor market. My favorite one this year, 
I was in rural New Mexico um, in June, working on a railroad down there, and I'd been staying at this motel for 19 years. This year, it became a self-service motel. They couldn't find anybody to work there, so what they did is they rolled the cart out into the hall, and if you wanted to change your sheets, you went out and got the sheets, <laughs> took them in, changed the sheets. Same with the, you know, same with the towels and that sort of thing. But I'm thinking, my God, in rural New Mexico, which is a depressed area, and they can't find anybody. Okay, it's it's a tight it's a tight labor market. It's a constraint on activity. There are things that don't happen because you can't find people. Okay. Talk to people in the construction business. Talk to people in the trucking business. Okay. Can't find drivers. Can't find you know, carpenters, electricians. I mean, we're pushing capacity. Last three months, about 218,000 net new jobs a month. Okay. Now, initial unemployment claims, which come out every Thursday morning, I haven't, I haven't seen them this morning, but initial unemployment claims are basically at the level that you saw in 1969. They bounce around from week to week. But think about it. The same level of initial claims, how big was the U.S. economy in 1969 compared to what it is now? This tight labor market, okay. Downskilling. Gad Levinson, an economist at the conference board, had some sort of interesting blogs on, on the labor market. And, you know, downskilling, when things were bad, when you had double-digit unemployment rates, there was a long line of people looking for jobs. So you could say, oh, I want four years of experience on this software, I want a degree, that sort of, that sort of thing. Can't do that now, okay. Now, you know, well, sorry, you may have had some problems when you were young. We'll disregard those, okay? Uh, you don't necessarily have that skill, but we can teach you. Those kinds of things are happening. I was in, I was making a presentation to an industry group last, uh, last summer, and they said they'd had to stop doing drug tests, okay? Because if they did drug tests, they couldn't get anybody to pass, okay? Uh, and so, you know, recruiting in prisons. Uh, before, people, before people get out, tight labor market. But that means opportunity. That means people have a chance that they did, not, they did not have. The Beige Book, which comes out from the Federal Reserve about two weeks before the Fed meets, the Beige Book uh, paints a picture. It's anecdotal stuff from across the country, broken down geographically. And they paint a picture of tight labor markets. People having to do all kinds of things to find people in the growing list of occupations uh, or skills in short supply. I mean, it paints a very strong picture. Recruitment and retention issues become, become paramount in this, kind, in this kind of environment. The October participation rate was almost up to 63%. Because one of the things that's happening in the labor market, you got old baby boomers who are leaving. Uh, and that's a significant, you know, shrinkage of the labor force. Then you got millennials, millennials entering, uh, but it's a much slower growing labor force than we have had uh, in the past. Gad Levin, in another one of his blogs, 
breaks down wage increases, which is pretty interesting that blue-collar and low-paid service wages have been rising more rapidly uh, than white-collar jobs. Uh, you know, we haven't had a lot of emphasis on the trades and that sort of thing, and you've got very strong demand there uh, and rapidly increasing wages. Not the pattern that we had seen, that we'd seen in the past. We're moving into a world, and you as employers, I mean, you know this, we're moving into a world of much slower growth in the labor force, okay? You get out into the 2020s and beyond, people are thinking labor force growth rate's gonna be less than half a percent, okay? You go back to the 70s and it was over 2%. So the difficulties in finding and keeping people are likely to be around for a while. What's the response gonna be? Will the tight labor market have the effect of boosting productivity? Productivity growth has been slow. But as people respond to, geez, I can't find people, what can I do to re-engineer the process, change technology, whatever, to help boost productivity? That's gonna be critical to keeping the growth rate up and rising incomes over time. Monthly change in the consumer price index, okay? Look, yeah, it was up three-tenths in October. Look at the year over year, two and a half percent in October, okay? The core was 2.1%. The core, of course, excludes food and energy, which bounce, which bounce around a lot. And as you've all noticed, when you drive down the street, um, gasoline prices are falling rapidly. Okay, as crude oil prices have, have, have come down, so we're likely to see some good inflation news in the headline, the headline number. Uh, the personal consumption expenditure deflator, those numbers came out this morning, uh, but and I, don't know, I don't know what they were, but the point is the core there is 2%. What's the Fed been shooting for? 2%, okay. So I said earlier, we're there, we're there. Now, William McChesney Martin was head of the Federal Reserve uh, back in the 60s, okay? And he had this wonderful phrase, the job of the Federal Reserve is to remove the punch bowl before the party gets out of hand, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's a clap, fantastic description of monetary policy. You and I have lived through this incredible period we saw interest rates essentially go to zero. The Fed cut the federal funds rate target to zero to 0.25 back in 2008, trying to deal with the Great Recession. They started to raise rates in December of 2015. If you look at those blue, the blue bars, that's the federal funds rate. The first, the increase there was in December of 2015, December of 2016, and you see the pattern. The Fed has slowly raised rates, okay? Federal funds rate target is now two to two and a half, two to two and a quarter percent. It was zero to 0.25. The taller bar is the 10-year security. Now, that's important because, of course, that's what mortgages are priced off of. But you can see the 10-year bounced up right after the election, 
As perceptions changed, deficit was going to be larger, likely to see tax changes, infrastructure program, that sort of thing. Then it dropped off. Okay. Then you saw it bounce up late last year when the tax stuff was finally passed. And earlier this year, you had an, another, a big increase in federal spending. You saw it rise. Then since October to the 23rd, okay, it it dropped down a little bit, but note the pattern, okay, the pattern of rising rates. Now, if you think about monetary policy, and I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on monetary policy, not just because of the events of yesterday, but that's going to be a key thing to watch as we move into 2019. We've had eight funds, funds rate increases, okay? Now, Central banks around the world, led by the United States, okay, are starting to withdraw support they put in place during the Great Recession to prevent the Great Recession from becoming the Great, Great Depression, too. The Fed's been raising the federal funds rate, as I showed you, but the Fed also bought trillions of dollars worth of securities, mortgage-backed securities and government bonds, in an effort to push down longer-term interest rates during the Great Recession. So they've got more than $4 trillion worth of bonds on their balance sheet. Well, they've started to unwind that. They started in October of 2017 letting $10 billion a month roll off. You know, as a bond matures prior to October of 2017, they just buy another one. Okay. But now... They're letting, they started with 10 billion a month. Now it's 50 billion a month rolling off. They're trying to reduce the size of their, uh, of their portfolio. Have we done it before? No. This is new stuff. That's something to have in the back of your mind that can put upward pressure on interest rates as they're not rolling that over. They're not buying it, so somebody else is going to have to buy it. In the last two recessions, okay, the Fed cut the federal funds rate by five percentage points or more. Let's see, where is it today? Two and a quarter. They can't do it. You know, they don't have a five, five percentage point range option out there. They can take it back down to zero, but They've had to do more than that before. It's important to keep that in the back of your mind, and that's one of the reasons the Fed is moving. Not only they've achieved their targets, but they're trying to get ready for that next downturn. Put some arrows back in the, back in the quiver. Now, Chairman Powell gave a speech in August at the Jackson Hole Conference, which is sponsored by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Now, he talked about monetary policy. Now, you might say, why is he putting some up there from last August? Well, he said it again yesterday okay, uh, in his speech to the Economist Club. He said, you know, basically, the Fed sort of has to worry about a couple things. Some people say, with the unemployment rate well below the estimates of its long-term level at 3.7%, why isn't the Fed tightening more? Okay to head off overheating and inflation. That's one view. 
Others argue, with no clear sign of an inflation problem, why is the Fed tightening policy at all? The risk of choking off job growth and continued expansion. The president probably thinks that, okay? Those are sort of the two things. Possible Fed errors, and he said this yesterday, moving too fast and ending the upturn or moving too slowly and getting overheating and accelerating inflation. In August, he said, you know, when you're uncertain about the effect of actions, because as he reiterated yesterday, when you do monetary policy, in the words of Milton Friedman, okay, the effects take a long time and they're variable. A lot of uncertainty. So you got to move slowly. So Powell said, we'll follow the Brainerd principle. When you're uncertain about the effect of actions, move conservatively. And that's what they're doing. He made a statement yesterday, if you watched the financial press last, or financial news last night, what, stock market was up 600 points, yes, 600 points yesterday. What did Powell say? He said that we're getting close to a neutral rate of interest that's not stimulating or retarding. So markets took that as, he's almost done raising rates. And he also said that monetary policy is not on a preset path. So basically saying, hey, we're not you know, definitely going to do three or four. It depends on the data. And people got very, very excited about that. But I mean, this is where he's, this is where he's coming from. Now, you can see he's been getting a lot of, uh, pre the president has been bashing the Fed for raising rates. You know, Lyndon Johnson used to do that all the time. He, the legend is he'd have Billy and McChesney Martin down to the ranch and explain to him how he liked low interest rates. Okay. Uh, that's happened before. Nixon did that stuff back in the, back in the 70s. Okay. And then you know, there was a period where you didn't see a lot of it, but now you, the president's doing a lot of, doing a lot of Fed bashing uh, at the moment. I talked about the shock of rising rates. Okay. This is sort of fun. This is the 30-year mortgage rate. 30-year okay. mortgage rate is from the Federal Reserve Bank of, of Kansas, uh, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Freddie Mac. What I want you to see, look, 2000, middle of 2016, the 30-year conventional mortgage rate was about 3.4%. Okay. Okay, now. It's up around 4.8, okay. Now, if you have a 3.4% mortgage and you look at a 4.8, oh my God, look what's happened to rates. Some of us in the room have had 11 or 12% mortgages. You look at that and says, what's the big deal? Okay, 4.8%. But there's a lot of people who have grown accustomed to these extraordinarily low rates. That's where we are. Now, it's important, I'll show you in a second when we, when we look, at some, look at some housing stuff, okay? But that's where they are now. Now, to show you the implications, one of the things that's happened uh, is housing has softened, okay? Across the country, housing has softened. Prices are not rising the way uh, that they were. You've seen a plateauing uh, in building permit uh, kinds, kinds of activities. 
And, you know, I'm sure this is sort of fun to play with, to see the difference. I mean, most of us are not in the housing market every, you know, every day. But I used October RMLS data from Portland, okay? You know, price 395, okay? Back two years ago, about 347, I adjusted it with the Case-Shiller, uh, the Case-Shiller index. Look, if you go back to 1016, Mortgage rates, about 3.47%. You look at mortgage rates, 11.18, you're talking 4.81, 20% down. Okay, I just used one of those mortgage calculators to get the principal and interest. Look at the difference. Look at the difference in the payment. This is principal and interest, not taxes and, insur you know, taxes and insurance. But just that pushes up the mortgage payment by about 30%. Okay the combination of rising rates and rising prices. What's happened to affordability? Affordability has declined and people have responded, okay? They're not buying the way that they were before. So you got three things going on. You got rising incomes, you've had rising prices and you got rising mortgage rates. Well, with the tightening in labor markets, incomes will likely rise more rapidly House prices have started to weaken. Okay. A lot of areas are seeing falling housing prices now. Bidding wars diminishing, if not, uh, if not ending. Okay. But you see why housing has slowed down as this kind of stuff has gone on. Rising rates and rising prices. Now, let's think about the tax, the tax stuff. You know, this had all, you know, wasn't a, wasn't a done deal uh, by the, at the time of this meeting last year. Okay. You know, it's primarily, you know, I'm not going to go through a lot of the detail, but primarily a business, a business tax cut. Okay. It's a test. Can the incentives boost the growth rate, increase capital formation, offsetting the drag from demographics and poor productivity? I mean, the hope being that you get more investment, okay, that would boost productivity, okay, offsetting some of that slowing from the, the growth rate in the labor force. Then the child, the, the personal stuff, expanded standard deduction, child credit, no personal exemption, state and local tax limitation, pass through, okay, you've seen that. But the fun thing is, remember, none of us have filed a tax return under this new system yet. None of us, okay. And we'll get that experience after the first, after the first of the year. It's gonna be very interesting to watch how people behave, okay. Uh, how will they respond to it? It'll, it'll be fun to watch. In addition to the tax cut, separately, you had increases in spending in 2018 and 2019 with the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018. They suspended the debt ceiling until March of 2019 and boosted government spending. That's one of the reasons on that GDP thing, notice the government, uh, the government spending had, had increased. That was contributing to the growth. So we've put stimulus into the economy with the tax, the tax cuts and increased spending. We've not filed. Interesting question is have we disarmed for the next downturn? I'll 
I don't know when the next downturn is going to be. I don't think it's going to be in 2000, 2019. But when it comes, what's the standard response? Increase spending, cut taxes, or some, or some combination thereof. Will we be able to do that because you've seen in fiscal 2018, the deficit increased to 7.79 billion, 3.9% of GDP in the 10th year of an upturn at a time normally when the deficit would be gone or dramatically declining. Okay. And that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening this time. The Congressional Budget Office reviews tax and spending, spending data. Okay. We reduced revenues and increased outlays you raise the growth rate in 2018 and 2019, you know, and increased incentives to work, save, and invest, partly offset by larger deficits. Debt held by the public is headed up to where it was at the, after the Second World War. We haven't been there. We haven't been there in a long, long time. They worry about the consequences. If you look at last year's spending, one of the more rapidly growing components was interest because interest rates have been rising. You've got trillions of dollars in debt, a lot of it's short term. The costs of that rise with interest rates. So the potential is that crowds out other things the federal government might do. Federal government's always going to get its funds. And who's not? Private sector, and maybe that'll reduce investment. That's the worry and less flexibility when the next downturn comes, will we be able to cut taxes and increase spending? Or will the markets react very negatively to that, pushing interest rates up even higher? That is the risk. Got to talk about trade. That's all changed a lot since we met last year. Okay. Very exciting stuff. Okay. Since the end of the Second World War, in reaction to what had happened in the 1930s, the world has generally been on a path of reducing trade barriers. We had a series of meeting, global meetings, rounds of negotiating trade barrier reductions, first under the auspices of the General Agreement on, on Tariffs and Trade. But it was Geneva, Anne Geneva, Torquay, Dillon, Kennedy, Tokyo, and Uruguay rounds of trade barrier reduction, reduced trade barriers around the world. Okay. The GATT went away and was replaced by the World Trade Organization, okay. 1995, still there. You know, nations are dragged into that stuff. Everybody tries to protect certain things, but we've stepped back from that. You know, we're not doing that. We're not doing that now. You can see that on a daily, a daily paper. Now, I don't have time to go through the economics of this, but one of the things it's vital to remember, the current account deficit, the trade deficit and, de you know, and, and what's going on in services, the current account deficit, which people get all emotional about, okay? It's the difference between savings and investment and the difference between taxes and government spending. That's an accounting identity, okay? Now, what have we done? We've just increased the federal deficit substantially. 
We've provided investment incentives. So what's going to happen? The current account deficit is going to get larger. Okay. I mean, as the day follows the night, okay, the current account deficit's going to get larger. And so we're in the midst of railing against trade deficits that are, that are basically driven by policy. That's what we're doing, okay? And that's what we see now on a daily basis. We're unwinding supply chains and long-term relationships that have been set up over that time period uh, since the late 1940s, okay? The globalization stuff that's taken place. I mean, if you start looking at things, where things are made, they're amalgams of parts from around, from around the world, incredible supply chains, and that stuff is being upended. We're not sure where it's going to end. Where do you invest? Okay. Do you put capacity here or this country or that country? Because you don't know what's going to happen to the trade, the trade barriers. It's not the world we grew up in. You know, it started with solar and washers and lumber, no Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then steel and aluminum, okay? Retaliation, expansion of tariffs, and more retaliation. A new, uh, a new NAFTA, will it pass the Congress? One of the things that we're learning, okay, and you know, I think we knew this, we didn't pay enough attention to it, is you know, when you change trade barriers, there are winners and losers. Okay? And the United States, we've had policy in place to help the losers, but we didn't do very much with it. Okay? And so people said, gee, I, you know, I lost my job because of, uh, because of trade. They didn't get necessarily the assistance to retrain, relocate, that sort of thing. It didn't happen. And that was a source of dissension uh, that was very, very important in 2000. And 16. Been fascinating to watch in the media warnings about price increases. Buy before the tariff is imposed. Okay, uh, that sort that sort of thing. You know, we hadn't seen that in a long time. So where are we going? Okay, well, this year growth's going to be right around three percent. Okay, significant acceleration from what we've seen since the economy turned. Next year, expect it to slow, 25 to 3% range, slow a little bit. But remember, we're pushing capacity. Where are you going to get the people? Okay. Then worries about what the trade stuff, trade stuff might do. Inflation, Fed thinks it's going to stay in 2 2.5% range. Uh, I think the risks are on the upside. Now, rising rates, I think the Fed's going to raise rates again in a couple of weeks when they meet next time taking the federal funds rate to two and a quarter to two and a half. But what happens after that is not baked in stone, okay? It's gonna depend on the data. And I think the Fed had said at their last meeting, maybe three increases next year. That was the median outlook. Now it's not so, it's not so clear. And I think that's what Powell's remarks yesterday uh, highlighted. The thing to remember, remember where we are. We're in year 10. In June, we'll be entering year 11. Okay, amazing. I always like to think of these things in terms of 
actors. What will the actors do? You know, we all wear a number of different hats. Uh, consumers, investors, per, you know, that, that sort of thing. Employers. How will we respond to the incentives, to the environment that we're in, to the new tax law? Will we increase, will we increase investment? How will we manage our spending, borrowing, and the like? How will people respond? Look at the region. October unemployment rate, Idaho 2.7, Oregon 3.8, Washington 4.3. Personal income growth. Now that looks a little funny, quite honestly, when you look at Washington at 1.6%, which was the weakest in the country. It makes sense in the first quarter, Washington was number one because of bonuses and that sort of thing in the technology sector that blow personal income up substantially in the first quarter. And this is the change from the previous quarter, so it's a significant, significant slowing. Population growth, 2.2, 1.4, and 1.7, 2016 and 17. The national population growth rate, 7 tenths of a percent. So you see this inflow. You saw Portland State uh, put their numbers out for 2018 that had Oregon population growth at 1.3%. Residential permits, Idaho up about 20% to September, Oregon down, uh, Washington at 2.1%. See, housing in a lot of places has softened, I think in part, because of that affordability thing that I showed you, as well as land use constraints, that sort of, that sort of thing. House price index and Federal Housing Finance Agency. Idaho at 13, Oregon at about, about 8, Washington at about 11. So we've got the region, rapid population growth over time, strong personal, strong personal income growth, house price acceleration. This is the most recent data from job growth update out of Arizona State University and the BLS. Look at Oregon, ninth. Okay. Ninth fastest growing state in the country from an employment perspective. You know, look at Washington. Washington's number, Washington's number two, Idaho 15. Only one state didn't have employment growth. Vermont. That's it. Okay. Everybody else is growing. Okay. Lowest unemployment rate in the United States is in Hawaii. Okay. Touch over, touch over 2%. That's what we've got. Broad-based expansion. Now, you know, you look at this, I mean, I figure no, people won't necessarily remember numbers, but you're right, remember the shape. Look at that, okay. There's Oregon employment since 2013. You can see, just heading on up. We could put, we could do that for the whole region. We'd get a similar, uh, a similar kind of picture. There's the most recent Oregon employment stuff, October, year over year at 2%. One of the fun things is you look at that government and you see government down substantially. You go, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is a reclassification. Uh, sort of home healthcare workers were taken out of government and put in the healthcare category. Okay. And so there were big switches in numbers, had no effect on the total, but you look at the specific sectors and it looks a little, excuse me, it looks a little weird. But you can see construction, manufacturing, you know, broad-based broad -based gains in employment. You look around the state, the metropolitan areas, okay, 
These are the October, the October data, all the metropolitan areas, everybody up except Corvallis, which was down, uh, down slightly. Uh, like I say, that's not a football score. Uh, anyway, uh, then, anyway then, uh, Portland at 2.2%. If you, went to, if you went to Eugene, you got to do that. <laughs> anyway, there's Portland, Hillsborough, Vancouver, MSA. Going back 2010, same basic pattern. No surprise to anybody in this room. Okay, you see the continued the continued gains. Okay, that's where we that's where we are. Now, thinking about Oregon. Okay. Sailing along, you know, you saw that pattern, feeling pretty good, okay. Slower population growth, that Portland State number that came out, the, you know, slower population growth, decline in the number of people moving to the state. The population growth is still coming from net, uh, net in migration, but it's happening at, uh, happening at a, slower, a, a slower rate. There's a lot of fiscal, a lot of fiscal uncertainty. What's gonna happen as a result, we had the new, of course, the new, uh, the new election with the supermajorities. Uh, what's going to happen fiscally? I mean, Oregon's an outlier, as everybody knows, with our overwhelming reliance on one tax, personal income, personal income tax, okay. uh, and question about adequacy of, of revenues. You've seen measures to try to do gross receipts, taxes. It's very likely something will happen this, uh, this time. Purse problems still there, okay. Haven't seen major changes there. If you looked at the state um, Office of Economic Analysis, the revenue forecast, which came out, uh, came out last week, gonna get another kicker. Okay, at least that's what it looks like, okay. Now revenues about 3.9% above the close of session forecast. Those of you who, I think probably everybody knows what the kicker is, but it started in the late 70s uh, in an environment of high inflation where Oregon revenues, when you're relying on an income tax and you, it's an unindexed tax system and you have double digit inflation, revenue is gonna just pour into the state. So what the legislature did was they put in place a corporate kicker and a personal kicker so if income comes in more than 2% above the close of session forecast, it gets rebated to the taxpayers, okay? Uh, the corporate kicker was subsequently, re, uh, subsequently repealed. That goes into a, an education reserve fund, but the personal kicker is in the Constitution. I personally liked it when you got the check right before Christmas, okay. Uh, but now it's not the way it works. Now it's a credit on, on the, taxes, the taxes filed. But right now the kicker's at about $724 million. That's the estimate of what the kicker will be, will be this year. So it'll be interesting to see, or this biennium. We get a cap and trade. Oregon's talked about it a long time. You saw it defeated, uh, defeated in Washington. That may happen. That may happen this year with some kind of a, um, a fee on emissions of uh, carbon. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, okay. Ever since June of 2009, the next move was gonna be down. Okay, I mean, we started up then, 
My brother worries a lot. He's always sending me these articles. There's a recession here. Bruce, you know. There's one out there someplace. Nobody knows exactly when it is. Okay. The expectation is that it's not going to happen in 2019. Look around. Okay. Do upturns die of old age? No, they don't. Okay. You look at Netherlands, Australia, they've had upturns that have gone on for more than a quarter of a century. You know, our record's 10 years. Doesn't, there's no, you know, calendar that says it has to end. Look around. Look around for the things that you might have seen prior to other ones. Now, I realize, I mean, a lot of people may not remember a lot of recessions. But in the 60s and 70s, you had a tightening of policy to crush out inflationary pressure. Is that going on? No. Okay. Fiscal policy is expansionary. Monetary policy, they're moving very slowly. Okay. This is not Volcker pushing interest rates up to 20 plus percent to crush out inflation. This is a gradual move. Think that Brainerd, that Brainerd principle. The financial crisis, everybody remembers that okay, in 2006, seven. Is that what we're looking at in housing? No. Okay. Underwriting standards are very, uh, are very different. Um, we're not talking about a housing, a housing bubble. Okay. Oops. Oil shock. Everybody in the room has been through oil shocks, which have played a role in U.S. recessions. Historically, oh, an increase in the world price of crude oil would be a dampener for the United States. We'd have to spend more to get the existing barrels of oil. The income wouldn't necessarily come back, uh, come back quickly. That was a drag. Look at what's happened since the end of September. Oil prices are down 30% since the end of September. Crude's now down, you know, people were in September, people were talking about crude going back to 100. Because remember, you know, you were going to have the, uh, the Iranian uh, embargo. They were going to try to keep uh, Iranian oil off the world oil markets. But then we, a bunch of countries got exemptions for that. So that didn't, that didn't happen. And who's the largest crude oil producer in the world? It's the United States now. More than Russia. More than Saudi Arabia. Thank the frackers. Uh, we have this ability to increase production in the United States. Oil prices leaped and now they plummeted. Remember, from the standpoint of oil consumers, great deal, okay, great deal, but that's where we are. So oil prices at the moment uh, are, not gonna, are not gonna have the same kind of influence they did. It's a very different world with more of the production being located in the United States. Falling oil prices have significant implications maybe in the Permian Basin or in the Bakken, uh, but it's different than it was before. Balance sheets, balance sheets are strong. Credit qualities, credit qualities good. Oregon, what's expected to happen? Oregon and the Portland metro area expected to continue to grow in 2019, but more slowly. Growth rate moving, 
We've been up in the 3% three, 3 range, now moving down closer to 2%, but still up, but still up. And again, remember, we'll be heading for the 11th year. But I can't be totally optimistic here. Okay. There's some other things to think about. A Minsky moment. Hyman Minsky was an economist who wrote about stability and instability. And he had this wonderful line, stability breeds instability. Between 1982 and 2007, we had two very short recessions, minimal. So what did people tend to think? Oh, we'll just keep on, keep on going up. You forget about risk. Okay. Now, this is a long upturn in historical standards in the 10th year. It's not the 25-year period we had before. But you worry a little bit. People have been through this long expansion with incredibly low interest rates. Okay. How much risk have they taken on? Have they forgotten about risk? Not a lot of signs of that, but something that we have to think about. Recession leftovers. Now, yesterday, the Federal Reserve put out its first report on financial stability. I got partway through it, uh, partway through it last night. Uh, but the shock of unwinding that policy, selling or not rolling over those securities in the Fed portfolio, just looking at that, that would put upward pressure on interest rates. I showed you the eight moves that the Fed has already done. This is not something we have a lot of experience with, and it's a shock to a lot of people, a lot of firms. The uncertainty about trade. What's the end game? Is this all a giant bargaining ploy? Watch what happens this weekend when you have the meeting between the president and the Chinese premier. Because the threat is there'll be another big round of tariff increases on January 1st, 2019. A lot of, a lot of uncertainty. The weakness in the rest of the world. Japan was down last quarter. Germany was down last quarter. The weakness in the rest of the world. You know, the United States looks good, but you've seen some downward revisions to forecast for the rest of the world. That's got implications for us. I showed you in that GDP stuff, that third quarter weakness in investment. Will that last? Or was it just a temporary, a temporary thing? That's a very important question. The October-November financial turmoil. You know, getting your 401k statements after October isn't fun. <laughs> Will people re react to that, that change in wealth? Because you've had this long run-up. And last slide, the possible political shock. We had the election results. What kind of polarization will be there? Will there be the possibility of getting sort of bipartisan legislation to deal with longer-term problems? Got to worry about that. Unintended consequences. You put policy in place, and maybe there's some things that you didn't think about. You know, Harley Davidson's a classic example. You know, protect, you know, you put tariffs on steel or get retaliation. Harley says, now we gotta move production to Europe to get in under the tariffs. Yeah. 
forgot about that, you know. Uh, if you're in very difficult international relations, can you get cooperation on North Korea in that kind, uh, that kind of an environment? I attended a webinar a couple days ago on the trade stuff, and the people from the semiconductor industry were saying 50% of the semiconductors used in China come from the United States, and they come back to the United States, and we have tariffs on them. And it's stuff that we made, you know, that kind, that kind of stuff. Are we missing something? Is there something, I mean, the traditional stuff you look at doesn't show an end. Is there something out there we're missing? I don't know. We'll know a year from now. It's a remarkable place that we're at right now. Can we achieve a more inclusive prosperity? You've got rapidly rising wages at the low end now. Can we deal with the disruptions of trade, technology, changing tastes, and enhance mobility, social mobility, geographic mobility? You saw the GM announcements a couple days ago, okay, cutting or closing factories. But you think, that's changing taste. Those factories made sedans. When was the last time you saw a sedan? <laughs> Everybody drives pickups and SUVs, and the whole mix has changed. So that productive capacity okay, is not, you know, not used. But there are people who lose jobs and have to, have to adjust. Can we help them through that process to deal with change? And I would end with one of my favorite quotes from Copen Tan, who's a columnist for Barron's Magazine. I don't think there's going to be a recession in 2019, maybe not even 2000, 2020. But as Copentan says, like beer bellies and bald spots, it is very difficult to be precise about the onset of a recession until the evidence becomes overwhelming. Thank you for your attention. <laughs> Thank you, John. Really appreciate you doing this for us, and I always appreciate the way that John can take very complex information and convert them into something that I can understand. Uh, one comment, you mentioned it's going to be fun to watch the 2019 tax filing season. Not so fun for us as we have to implement it when <laughs> Treasury has only given us temporary regulations at this point. Uh, so it's going to be a fun season for us. Um, you've changed your, your model from poems to quotes, so appreciate that as well. Once again, let's give a round of applause to John. Hello. Uh, I'm Mike Rampa. I'm the managing shareholder of Geffen Mesher, and we are going to pivot, as Joe mentioned, to the next part of our session uh, for our CEO talk. Um, so I'd like to introduce, which order do we have here? Uh, Graciela Calger. Uh, she's the CEO of Schwabi Williamson and Wyatt. Uh, we've got Sadie Lincoln, who's the CEO and founder of Bar 3. And finally, Kyle Stavig, uh, CEO of Myers Container. Uh, this is gonna be moderated uh, by Ann Donovan, president of Zenium, uh, which she's done in the past. Um, couple reminders, you've got cards on your tables, uh, the colored ones. Uh, use those to write questions down. We'll have somebody gather those um, for the Q&A session, which will end at about 9.40. Uh, 
Uh, and then you also have evaluation forms on your table. Please fill those out. We're going to use those for a drawing at the end of the session today, a gift basket of wine and a book. So uh, please join me in welcoming the panelists and Anne. Thanks very much. It's great to be up here with these fine folks. Um, I appreciate all of you being willing to participate in this CEO panel, and we know it's going to be an engaging experience. We hope you have some questions that arise for you as we go through some um, already organized questions from the participant group that many of you sent in when you RSVP for this event. So we're excited to have everybody on stage. Thanks for being here. So. To sort of set the framework of, of some of the topics that we're going to talk about today, I just wanted to start with asking the panelists, what's keeping you up at night? So what are those organizational and business issues that are kind of those things that are, you know, you're not sleeping a little bit about, so the, the worries, but also the hopes of, of what's to come for the next year? And Graciela, I'll just start with you. What's keeping you up at night? Um, apparently chair positioning this <laughs> morning, uh, but uh, keeping me up at night, let's see. I thought of a couple of things. Uh, one, of course, is a major correction in the economy and what that means uh, for a law firm like Schwabe Williamson and Wyatt. How do, we, how do we make ourselves somewhat impervious to those kinds of corrections in the economy? Um, we think about that all the time uh, with our leadership team. The other thing that, that I think uh, occupies at least my recent mind uh, is sort of disruption in the legal industry uh, broadly, but specifically our, our seeming disconnection with millennials and my younger attorneys. They want different things than uh, those of us that are a little older want, and uh, we need to shift, and we need to shift our model to address that, and so figuring out how to be more connected uh, to that generation and not just sort of finger-wagging, well, I did it this way, and so you should do it the same. Um, and how to do that exactly uh, is something that occupies a bit of my mind. Great. Thanks, Graciela. Kyle, how about you? Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks for letting me be up here today. I should be there listening to uh, these answers, uh, as uh, I could learn from a lot of this as well. We, we're a heavy industrial manufacturer. We make 55-gallon uh, steel drums, not very sexy. So people don't aspire to really come to that industry. So, so finding people to come to your business is, is difficult. And it's the first time uh, that we've got you know, six generations working together. And you meet those people at different places. Uh, the millennials are at a different place of what they want, their aspirations and their uh, tenure, as, as opposed to somebody that's been around the block and has been there quite a few years and understands the industry. If you told a new person that you're going to be here for 30 years, they consider that a threat. They don't consider that an honor. So, so that's a reality of having to deal with, those, with, with that. Uh, the other thing is getting the customers to say yes. If we don't have customers that buy our product, we, we got problems. That, it all starts there. So uh, those are dependent on the economy, uh, very important. The other thing is raw material. We buy $100 million worth of steel a year, and this year uh, our president decided you couldn't buy that anymore. So that created a real uh, bit of angst when you're doing that, when you had a 40% cost increase on a commodity item. Just dealing with that turmoil and going through that, as John was explaining, those, those are the things that keep you up at night. And, and you don't know what's next. I, I'm waiting to see what happens this weekend to see uh, you know, what, what, what lies in, on us for, uh, for Monday. So those are the three things that keep us going. Plenty. Plenty to keep you up at night. How about you, Sadie? Uh, honestly, what keeps me up at night is the, 
during the day I worry about uh, being relevant as a company, a big company, being able to innovate, being able to take care of my people consistently, um, competition. That's what I worry about during the day and I have a healthy appetite for that. I love that. But honestly, what keeps me up at night, when I wake up at three in the morning, I think of my children. And how do I stay present with them as a mother? Um, because that's my heart, my soul's calling, is to be a, a, at a present mother. And how do I do that while having this incredible appetite to be successful and to run a giant company? Um, that's what keeps me up at night, yeah. is I have six more years with my children. Yeah. And they are, um, my soul's calling me home, but I, everything else in me wants to drive a giant company. Yeah, I can relate to that, that kind of balance of all of the, the pressures and desire of the, the entrepreneurial and business side and then making sure you're keeping it real with those things that are very most important for you. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Well, let's jump into some of the issues that John was talking about earlier in terms of, you know, the market has been really good um, for quite a long time, and especially this past year. So our clients are telling us that, um, you know, attracting and retaining talent is one of the biggest issues that, that they're experiencing. So, so Kyle, I'll, I'll kind of pivot and start with you. What are some of those things that, that your company is doing to address um, the culture issues that we know are engagement of employees is a big, big part of what keeps people interested in coming to our company and then staying once they're there. So what are some of those unique things that you're doing to engage your employees in the culture? Yeah, I probably have a, I'll have a different response because you had people that were trained and educated and became uh, attorneys. We have aspirational people who love a lifestyle and an opportunity. In our business, it's really if you crapped out on both of those, you come to us. So, <laughs> So, so the reality is, how do you motivate those people to come to your business? So we're felony friendly. You talked about downskilling. I mean, we, we meet them at the halfway house. That's a pretty good uh, place for us to chum for uh, folks to come work for us. But, but seriously, trying to get people to come with you and do that, it's probably the same for all of us to some degree, and it's around engagement. Uh, money and, is important, very important compensation uh, and opportunity, but it's all around engagement. Uh, I spend a significant amount of time uh, working on our business system, which is based on the Toyota production system. I spent a lot of time in Japan studying from, the, from Toyota. Uh, I spent a lot of time at the military institutes at either the Air Force Academy or at the uh, West Point, and really studying, understanding engagement and how they do that. And for us, uh, and how uh, Toyota is successful, is engaging people on a daily basis, meeting them where they're at and engaging them. Some of our jobs aren't very savory, so how do you get somebody that's doing moving a widget uh, 6,000 times a day. How do you get them to think about problem solving and how you do that? And Toyota has uh, got a masterful way of they do that. We run a process in our company. And, and so for us, it's, it's about engagement and meeting those folks there. Uh, it's not a perfect system, but it's our attempt as to how to get people to come in and learn uh, our business. They don't teach it anywhere. And how to be part of a team and be successful. And the Toyota production system is how we do that. Great. Thank you. Graciela, I know you were talking when we were chatting earlier about what the uniquenesses of uh, culture engagement for a law firm, which is a long-standing industry. Uh, share some of the things that you and your firm have been working on. Uh, we've been, you know, I came to this position with a, a really deep understanding of what culture means, and, and culture sometimes is pegged with being sort of a soft asset. It's, it's a nice thing if you got it. It's uh, a thing to fix if you blew it somehow. Um, 
I think of it as a hard asset. It's the way that you can attract talent. It's the way that you can retain talent. It's the way that you can communicate, that you can get the right kinds of folks, that you can get engagement, that you can get connection. And so what we did, what we are actually in the middle of doing right now is we, we took to measure what our current culture is. Lots of people would say, oh, you don't want to change that because that will affect our current. God forbid we want to negatively affect our current, never knowing really what our current culture is. Um, so we took to, turns out that you can measure that. I'm, a, I'm a, an engineer first a long time ago, so I have a very... Um, a very comfortable understanding of metrics and numbers. I worked in manufacturing, actually, and then I decided to take the leap into the dark side. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so we decided to go out and measure, and you can go out and measure your culture. That's what we're doing currently. We're trying to understand what kind of culture we are now and what kind of culture we aspire to be. And there's different kinds, and there's no really bad kind of culture. There, it just is whatever your culture is, so long as there's not any sort of toxic nature to them, and some cultures can become that. Um, so we're in the middle of that, and we're engaging with our, uh, our employees because we went out and measured, and it turns out that we are considered to be primarily market-driven or individual-driven currently, and we aspire to be much more collaborative. Uh, that's a kind of a new thing for, for lawyering in, a new, in many ways, and so we're, we're building up that kind of roadmap, what do you all mean by that? That's what we're in the middle of doing right now. And so we're engaging with our, uh, all of our employees from uh, attorneys all the way down to staff and, and record keepers and such. And we're trying to figure out what that means while keeping the client at the center. So our roadmap, assuming that there is a, a, a change that we want to do, our roadmap will be how do we keep the client at the center and become more collaborative, become more of the kind of culture we want to be, and how do we communicate that? Um, some of the, what we know is that if we do that, that that changes the way we even communicate with our employees, right? If we are seeking to be much more collaborative, the messaging that we use to communicate with our employees will be much more in that vein, uh, that, we, that our compensation systems reward collaboration much more directly than they do, for example, individual uh, behaviors and individual performance. Um, so we're in the middle of figuring out what that means in a culture where we currently are, where, for example, our compensation systems are designed to reward individual performance. Um, so all of those kinds of things, yeah. Yeah, awesome. And that changing the, the infrastructure of your people practices is what reinforces those cultural shifts that you're looking for. We see that a lot in the, the work that we do with our clients, too. Sure. So, Sadie, I know you have a lot to say about this topic, too. So share with us what some of those cultural things that are important at BAR3. Well, <laughs> to start with, people are our opportunity. I think every single person in the room would agree with that. The people that come to you are your opportunity. They're also our key constraint to growth. And I always look at culture inside first, and I start with myself and how I'm showing up every day and um, how self-aware I am as a leader, um, how willing I am to admit when I fail and to lean into struggle um, and relax into struggle and move forward and show the team how to do that how I take care of people in the in-between moments, not on a stage, um, how I um, 
help clean mats after class with our deep cleaners. Um, all the in-between moments, how we show up, I think is how culture is born and over and over and over again. And when I first started Bar 3, I taught 19 classes. I did everything. My husband and I held babies in childcare and checked everyone in, and we were it. And because of that, we grew this organic culture. It just happened over the years. And about three years ago, I realized I needed to be intentional about it. And I really fought that because when we started the company, we put away all the business books because for us, business was failing us. And we just wanted to operate from our souls and our values, and that worked. But then I realized, okay, now we're big. I need to have some systems in place because this is breaking down. Uh, people don't, you know, understand us anymore, and they don't really know that what we're about. And um, so we're very intentional about culture. We have vision, mission, values. We train. We develop um, around that, and we spend time every single day on that because, again, that's our key constraint. Um, if we don't spend time every single day on our culture and on our people and taking care of our people um, every single day, that's the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning, then we will not grow. Yeah, well said. And, and how would you describe the franchise environment? Is there um, other layers to that uh, structure that you have to keep in mind in growing a franchise organization? Certainly. Is anyone here a franchisee? Franchisor? Um, oh, I was going to commiserate with you afterwards. Um, it is an amazing model because I trust and empower owner-operators, and most of them are women, and we're really similar. Mm -hmm. And that's an exciting thing to be able to empower her to have her own business. That's an important value of mine. So what happens with franchising is they come in enamored and excited, and they spend a lot of money to be a part of what we've created, and, to, and it's a mutual kind of trust fall. And um, they meet us at the beginning, and then they build their own community, and they have their own hopefully thriving business. And then they kind of stop needing us as much, and the royalty fee every month is like, there's this whole like psychology of emotions that happens. And uh, so our job, um, my job as a franchisor is to have a trusting relationship with every single woman, mostly there's a couple men, who have put their life savings into my business and remember every single day that my job is to show up for them and to show them and sell into them that I'm helping them grow sustainably, um, that they need me and that I need them. And that is a conscious practice and constant dialogue um, that we have. And we have a really open, transparent dialogue about it too. Like, this is hard. This is a hard relationship. Yeah. Um, it's actually not you know, always going to be easy and we have to work through it because we're in it together in a rising tide you know, lifts all boats. And it truly evolves over time, right? The way it was when you first engaged with that franchisee. So much so. It's a lot like marriage. Yeah. <laughs> you got to keep it hot. You got to keep know? working on it. Yeah. Keep it hot. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> well, and, and that's a nice uh, segue to growing businesses. And I know that's um, something that all three of you are cognizant of. So how do you, Kyle, align um, your talent in communicating the vision and the growth strategies with your team and get them to buy in in those goals? Yeah. Our growth has been, we bought the original company in 2007 and we, we've grown it by 500% uh, since that period of time. Our growth has been through acquisitions. So the discussion about the culture becomes really important because we're normally inheriting somebody else's culture. Mm -hmm. So it, we don't have an organic culture we, we really, in fact, sometimes it'd be easier to start with an organic and build it up. You're, you're sometimes having to turn the ship when they're there. 
Uh, and how we do that is when in our acquisitions, what, what our whole philosophy and discussion has been, we become a collection of brands. So we never brand anything that we buy as our own. We, we leave that brand in place and really kind of play to the hubris of the people that we bought, that we buy really strong companies and we want to foster and do that. And they may do it slightly different than us and that should be collaborative. So our discussion on all these acquisition targets is, look, I don't know the answer to that, but if we get together, we'll make the right decision together for the business. And, and I'm not big enough and good enough to, to run every business that we have. We really need good people that are coming along. And, and so I learned from these people that had had really successful businesses in different geographies to kind of teach us or be a mentor to me. So for us, this has been a symbiotic relationship. The way we take that from the C-suite and then be able to deploy that is we use our business system, which is really based on a, it's called an X matrix. It's a very simple uh, uh, way of communicating uh, strategy. Uh, everything in our company is done on a, either an X matrix or an A3. And that, that tool doesn't mean much to anybody here other than I can say it's done on a single sheet of paper. So our strategic plan is a single sheet of paper. Now behind that will be weeks and weeks of work that get it to that. But if you have, uh, if you have to write down, a, 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 you have two hours to write a speech, you can go on and on and on. If you have five minutes to write a speech, you're gonna have to be a lot more concise. So in order to transition this to all levels in our company, making it really simple for our people to understand what our strategy is, is important. So we do that with our X matrix, and then any of our strategic initiatives in the company all run from an A3. And those elements are always the same. What's our current state? What's the future state? What's the gap? And what, what are we going to do to get there? And we just repeat that process. So we get down to some really simple tools so that we're communicating very complex things in a very simple manner and people can weigh in it. Now behind that, we'll have you know, reams and reams of information, but people aren't going to read that. And so we get about 140 characters, as you know, with Twitter to be able to communicate yeah. something. So that's, that's how we, we deploy our strategy in our company. That's great, thank you. Graciela, how about you in the law firm? Uh, growth? Yeah. Uh, we have been uh, really successful in the last few years of growing uh, by double digits, so we, I, I hope, since I've only been in this position for a little over a year, I hope to continue that trend. Otherwise, Kyle? We're hiring, yeah, we're hiring. Uh, <laughs> we'll get you someday. Hey, you got we'll girls got to line up yeah. next, you know. Um, we, you know, again, we're really, we've, we are differentiating ourselves in the marketplace in a whole bunch of different ways, uh, not the least of which is, frankly, uh, we are a female-led law firm. That doesn't really exist in this country much. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm proud to say that in the 125-year uh, history of our firm, I am the first female to lead it. So I'm proud to do that. I'm, um, my partners have been incredibly supportive, and the marketplace has been incredibly supportive of that change. Um, and that, is, that speaks to the kind of innovation we're making at, at Schwabi, I think, in the marketplace. One of the things we did a few years ago, we're now in year three of that transition, is we are focused on industry. So we, we go deep into where our clients are. We know a whole bunch about the manufacturing industry. That's one of the industries which we focus on. We have six of them all together. And so we line up teams, cross-functional practice attorneys on different um, different industries. For example, the real estate needs of a tech client are vastly different from the real estate needs of a healthcare client. And the attorneys, the real estate attorneys in both of those industries know that. Um, we know, for example, that manufacturing has uh, workforce is 
pretty much across the board a concern, as uh, John mentioned. So we go to our clients where our clients are, and we are proud to, to say that we provide legal solutions. We're not just talking about legalese and, and uh, covering, uh, you know, the, the death and minutia of, of, uh, of the details that could go wrong, but really trying to focus the risks and the legal solution to where our clients are in their environment and the, in the risks and, um, and competitiveness that they face in the marketplace. So that's one way we're doing it. Uh, the other way we're doing it, again, because I come from an engineering background, uh, I stood up an innovation lab. So we're trying to go out there and figuring out how we're going to innovate. What are we going to do to our clients? We're partnering with a couple of clients, including uh, Columbia, for example, who's very much out there trying to innovate themselves and seeing, so how could we work together to provide a solution that perhaps we haven't, either of us hadn't seen before, but maybe together we can uh, figure out some cool kind of automation. I just called uh, one of our clients and I said, you know, they are a company out of Corvallis. I think they're going to be doing, they are already doing amazing things. Uh, they're looking at data. They're a machine learning company and they're looking at big data. And I said, you know, how can we partner so that you help us uh, look at our big data and get a tool together. Um, and, and again, you know, engaging in our, with our millennials, you know, they want feedback immediately. So we're going to partner with another client, actually, maybe, and develop a tool that we can gather feedback immediately. Uh, they, you know, just on their phones. They can say, give me feedback to the partner. The partner has to put in a star or two or three or four. So simple things like a nap like that to uh, much more innovative partnerships with our clients. So those are the kinds of ways that we're looking um, to, to move and change. And the one thing that keep repeating over and over is that change is where we're at right now. Change in all aspects. We are embracing it. We are doing it. We're moving. We're trying things. If they don't work, we're going to scrap and rebuild. Um, so that's how we approach the market. That's great. And in the spirit of embracing change and, and looking at this tight labor market, I, I think we have to talk a little bit about you know, attracting and retaining talent. So Sadie, share a little bit about what creative strategies you've used in this tight labor market. You're looking for a, a variety of different people, mm -hmm. franchisees as well as employees. What's been successful for you as the, the market tightens? <clears throat> Yeah, the boutique space has exploded since 08 when I opened, um, and bar specifically, my category is a new category that's now known. When I started, it wasn't known. And so it's highly competitive. And over and over again, I go back to looking inside because for us, what's worked for us over and over again is to create what we call workplace awesomeness, which is like a giant magnet for the right talent. Um, the more we focus in on our people and our day-to-day -day activities and how we're taking care of our people and remembering the client and remembering what we're best at and staying there, strategically partnering with people that can help fill in um, so that we are all directed and we're all focused and everybody in our company feels like they have meaning and purpose and they're trusted and empowered with clear, measurable goals. That's workplace awesomeness. They're seen and heard and they're moving towards something important We've found that over and over again, and I really think this crosses Indian industry, um, that those people are the ones that end up attracting the next, the next wave and the next wave. 
And the other thing that's really important to having a culture that's attractive, and the other thing is, I used to attract like the C players, the ones that maybe like loved bar three and um, you know needed bar three, and I found that really endearing, so I would pull them in and then spend a lot of time helping them. And that didn't work for us. Uh, what works much better is when I find people who I need. And I'm, tracking, tra I'm attracting the A player, not the B player, not the B plus, the, B the A plus player. Um, and then really, truly empowering them over and over again. That doesn't always work. And so I think a huge part of attracting and retaining talent is actually letting go of talent. And that's definitely my biggest work and the hardest thing to do. But one of my mantras is let them outgrow me. You know, it's not a good fit, let them outgrow me. And um, continuously weeding um, so that there's more room for the next person and just trusting that that person will, will come and it, you know, long to hire, quick to fire. Um, that process over and over again has helped us. Yeah. Thank you. Kyle, how about you? Well, the talent for us, a little bit interesting, picking a lot of stuff up what you're saying there, Sadie. Uh, in our term, we use our produ Toyota production system. And I'll give you an example in a minute how we do that. But it all starts with our foundation, customer first. We talked about that. I've got to have the customer sales. And respect for people. I had a mentor early on. And uh, you just hit on something early on, said, give me your definition of respect for people. And I said, we all have a job for life. We're around here. We're we're family, and like, well, you're kind of onto something, but that isn't exactly it. Respect for people means you also have to develop your people. You've got to develop them continually. And just having them come in and not develop them, you're not being very respectful. The second element of that is you have a job, if you have 500 people that want to do something and one person that doesn't want to, you have a job to either get that person, coach them up or coach them out. Out of respect to the other 499, that's your job as a CEO, as a leader. You have to make that tough decision. And so sometimes uh, stopping the bus and letting somebody off is the most difficult thing you have to do. Um, is part of that, so our development for people, how do we do it? I'll give you an example in our company. I, I give this example and people find this fascinating. In our company, uh, we run what we call a rapid improvement event. It starts every Monday. We have a different initiative at every factory on a Monday. We follow a nine-step process. And on Monday morning, we give a team of 10 people, oftentimes don't even know each other. We put them in a room and give them a project, big, hairy project. Two weeks ago, the project was on Monday morning. We got a team together in our Portland office, and we said, we've got a $300,000 problem. We needed to solve it. So we had somebody from the shop floor, somebody from the office, customer, supplier, people from other locations. We put them in a room and said, follow this facilitated process. Well, the first response from everybody in the room is, well, that can't be done. That's a bit insulting. If, if we could have found that, we would have done that already, right? The second thing would have been, we got a bunch of dummies working here, and if we got rid of these dummies and got smarter people, this would get a lot easier. It's like, okay, well, neither one of those are going to happen, so just follow the nine-step process, because there's nobody else who's going to show up here tomorrow, okay? So then we check in again at Tuesday at 4 p.m., and at 4 p.m., the team will report out what they've done going through this nine-step process. So they've marinated on this issue for two days, and it's always the same on Tuesday afternoon. Sir... There, can we adjust the $300,000 goal to $50,000? That seems to be more realistic. We, we kind of agreed. And the answer is no. And you can't change the people or the team, but do you need any resources? you need money, time, effort? What do you need? And so that's where the Tuesday call is. Wednesday, 4 p.m. is our next check-in. 
It's always the same. Sir, we've got 35 experiments we're going to run in the next 48 hours. Some of them will pass, some of them will fail. You've told us we've got to follow this process and we're going to follow this. We'll talk to you at Friday at 8 a.m. So at 8 a.m. on Friday, that team, a lot of them may not have a high school education, that team reports out on Friday morning, and what do you think I got? I get the 300,000. I get it every week. And the common response is, oh my God, why didn't we do this sooner? And these people are the greatest people I've ever worked with. Oh my God, this is wonderful. And so for us, that culture discussion is we repeat that and we get our 500 people to the company. We just run that sausage grinder. So people that are coming in doing a mundane job, when we get that engagement, all of a sudden you've taken a guy that's doing this 6,000 times a day and you're telling him to solve a freight problem. He doesn't even know what that is. That is the kind of engagement where you're really developing human beings because somehow they had the wherewithal to show up, be part of their soccer team, go to church, get their kids to school, whatever it is. They, they, if we focus them on a problem, it kind of changes. They, they start not thinking about this so much, and they're starting to think about how to do better. And that's, that's how we create our culture and, and retain our people. And they're closest to the work, right? So they have great ideas that they don't even realize probably until you get them in that process. Uh, it's probably understood from the CEOs that are here in this room, the directors, um, we're servant leaders. They are the surgeons. Mm -hmm. Nobody buys anything from me. They buy it from them. They make the stuff. They get it delivered and do it. I'm just the, kind of the facilitator and the ringleader, but I don't make any and I don't bill it. I don't buy it. They do it. Mm -hmm. So when you start really thinking about you become a servant leader and getting the surgeons in a better place, how do you get that person to be more effective, to be able to take care of the patient, to fix the problem, teach this child, whatever it is, that process is really around enablement and getting those people to be successful. And it's, it's we've been doing this uh, since we bought the company in 2007 and we just keep upping every year more and more deep into this. Uh, if you were to go to Japan and you would talk to somebody that's at Toyota that's been doing this, I didn't create any of this, I just shamelessly steal all of it. Um, in Toyota, they've been doing it for 70 years and if you sat here today with two Toyota CEOs that were different companies, they would sit there and say, oh, we're awful, we're an awful company. And yet they've been doing it for 70 years. So you never get there. It's just continuous improvement and continuous self-actualization of what happens there. <laughs> and Graciela, it reminds me of the innovation lab that you talked about in terms of, of your business. So how does some of what Sadie and Kyle have said resonate with you and what you guys are doing for talent? You know, one of the things that happened uh, when we stood up the innovation lab, of course, I, I, I tapped a couple of uh, my senior partners to <clears throat> experienced partners, I should say, because they're not that old. In fact, they're younger than I am. Um, but I tapped those guys to, they had some interest and this kind of thing, and so I tapped those guys to kind of lead that effort into something. We're making it from cloth, right? We're just making it up. We're exploring. We're trying to figure out what we want to do and, and who we want to partner with in terms of our clients and so forth. And, but I thought it really important to get some of the younger set in. Um, because those guys live technology, right? The, the rate of change that they experience is, and that they're comfortable with is far superior to some of us older folk, um, where we're still like, we can't catch up, we can't update our phones fast enough. I mean, it's, it's uh, my kids, of course, laugh at my texting ability and the quickness of which I do that, um, <laughs> this kind of thing. So I brought in a couple of associates, I asked them to, to, um, to come in and participate in that effort. And you know, a couple things were kind of surprising to me. One is they were so excited to be participatory in that kind of effort. Uh, it was surprising to me. Um, 
And the other thing was that everybody was, that is the one thing, the beacon to them that we're doing, that everybody wants a piece of it. Everybody wants to know more about the Innovation Lab and what's going to happen. So it's been a really curious uh, internal dynamic that has been created of engagement and wanting to connect and wanting to really change. And it really has exemplified the kind of uh, willingness to explore things, to really shake it up, um, how we run the place and how we practice law and how we develop our associates, uh, because we're opening it, opening it up to all manner of, of discussions about you know, internal tools, go-to-market tools, et cetera, and what do people want to do that. So uh, engaging a younger set has proven to be uh, a really cool kind of uh, surgence, I guess you called it, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. Great, thank you. So pivoting there um, to cost pressures. Um, you know, obviously benefit plans, um, the costs are rising for the traditional medical, dental packages. Um, co co uh, compensation pressures are absolutely at play with the market being hot and unemployment being so low. So I'm curious to hear what, uh, number one, how are you dealing with some of those cost pressures in the business? And then two, what are you uniquely doing that's um, different than just the average benefits package to um, engage the employees and attract them in, in things that may not have been historically um, employer offered benefits or cultural things? So Kyle, I'll just lead with you on that one. Uh I don't know that we're doing anything innovative on that. A lot of our facilities are, are union, and so a lot of the, the contracts or the benefits are, are collectively negotiated. We have a lot of raw material in pre costs that come into us, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, so, so those things, uh, the health benefits and such that we can manage, we're kind of in the same boat. We, we, we just made an acquisition on an on a entity, and in that case, the, 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 the employer uh, didn't have the, um, the team involved in any part of the healthcare, they picked up 100% of it. And, and just out of philosophical belief, I had to change that. Though nobody went backwards when we trued them up, I figured as an American, you better be feeling the pain of these costs because you might vote or act or behave different if you all of a sudden knew that there was a little bit, that this stuff was, was, was painful. So we, we had to make those changes. The way we address the costs and such is we literally run our, 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 uh, our rapid improvement events. And we will start with a big hairy problem on a Monday and we go through it. And that's how we, we auger those things and go through those. And then ultimately what we have to do, we'll, we'll take it to a commercial uh, position. Uh, and we're a commodity item. There's a lot of uh, indexes that follow our raw materials. And so we'll have to go out and push those out to the customers. And so it's, uh, no, nobody's ever going to blame you for going out of business because you, you don't know how to price your product right. Mm -hmm. And so that's really something I spend a lot of time educating uh, our commercial teams that these costs are real and so many of these costs move even out of the front page of the business section and they've moved to the front page uh, of the, uh, the, the the hometown paper and John was uh, just gave that I mean this stuff is on the forefront all, all of you in here know of raw material tariffs you all know of healthcare costs these are all things as Americans that are not buried so it, our job is really to educate our commercial teams to understand you're not the only ones you're not living in a vacuum and uh, the, the, unfortunately, I think there's some inflationary pressures that are going to be coming on that. But uh, I'm not. I'm not going to solve America's problems. I've got to. I've got to be passing them through. Right. 
Absolutely. Sadie, how about you in terms of benefit costs or rising com compensation pressures? <clears throat> well, first of all, we franchise. I have 132-ish studios franchised, so they're not technically my employees. I own six studios. And then we have a digital online subscription business that has active subscribers in 98 countries. And then I have retail. Um, so I have a very complex business. I have 50 full-time employees. Um, but the vast majority of our employees are not um, tied to me because of the franchise uh, model. And I would say that our biggest line item, our biggest expense is payroll and healthcare and taking care of our, our team. And so I go back to what I mentioned earlier that our job over and over again is to find the right people, invest in them, and let go of the ones who don't work. Because the rising cost of payroll and healthcare and all the other things that were um, benefits that we're, we're giving them um, pale in comparison to someone with a, a salary who's not really showing up. Um, and so that's how I look at it. And it is our, our highest expense. And compared to other franchise companies, we have way more full-time employees um, because I'm so set on creating a premium product and quality. Um, versus a real scalable kind of robotic model. And so um, that's why I've added the revenue stream of digital and retail and my own studios and retreat business to kind of increase our revenue streams. Um, with all that becomes more people that I need to take care of. And so it's always that balance of um, can we create balance in the workplace? Um, can we continue to drive performance um, and invest? And, and remember, even in times when cash is tight, that it's the most important thing to invest in the right people, yeah. invest up front. Um, good maternity leave policy, strong, you know, take care of our team during, when they're grieving, um, they've lost their parent or whatever happens, um, and create an environment where they know they're, they're really taken care of, the right people are taken care of. Well said, great. Graciela? It's an interesting concept that Kyle just mentioned. See, I, you, you learn something um, all the time if you just stop and listen for a second. Um, what we have done is we've noticed just recently that our, a lot of our compensation package was based on a, the premise that benefits were less expensive than salary increases, for example, in past years or past decades. That has changed, and it might have changed a long time ago, but we became uh, acutely aware of that with the increases in healthcare recently. So what we're doing is uh, we're undertaking to what is our package? What is our complete package of benefits, and where are we getting the bang for the buck? Because a lot of those are still costs, and, and, our, um, uh, and our employees don't even know that they're getting it, don't even care that they're getting it. So. We're looking to evaluate all of that based on the current marketplace. Healthcare uh, continues to be the most important benefit, I think, um, to the exclusion of many others. So we have to go back and reevaluate our whole package and reevaluate that against our salary or competitive salaries in the marketplace and figure out strategically, just like we do with our clients, where we're going to position ourselves to attract that. Are we going to be the most important? Uh, benefits-rich firm out there so that people want to come because we are that, or are we playing because, are we playing in that we have the highest salary, perhaps at a, a, a poor benefits package, or some somewhere in between. But we're doing that very purposefully and very focusedly on, 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 uh, 
and the kind of employee we want and what that employee that we want ideal would want to, to see and it's, uh, it, are they younger, are they older, are they, you know, whatever in between. Uh, Great. So, yep. Thank you. Good. Well, at this point of the uh, panel discussion, I want to invite John Mitchell back up to the stage. I'm sure uh, many of you have questions for him based on his presentation. And if you have questions for any of the four individuals on the stage, please uh, uh, complete those and we'll have folks walking around to collect them so that if you have a, a burning question you want to get answered by one of these fabulous people, we can do that. Um, so, so John, thanks for coming up. I'll just, I'll start with um, a question for you that had come from the original um, gathering that we did. And, and that's the, what's driving Portland's recent extraordinary growth? Thanks, Brandon. Well, if, if you look at, look at the, Portland, uh, the Portland numbers, it's been very broad-based. I mean, you've, obviously, you've seen a lot of growth in, in business services where a lot of the technology software stuff is. Uh, education, medical stuff has continued to grow. Very rapid expansion in construction. It's, it's been almost across, almost across the board. And when I saw that that question was coming, I, I went and pulled stuff from Job Growth Update and Portland right now is in the, if you look at the cities with the over a million, uh, million in, in the labor force, uh, Portland in October was ranked ninth. But if you look at the neighborhood, who's above us? Okay. Uh, it's a lot of big Texas, uh, Texas MSAs, Houston, uh, Dallas, Austin, and then you got Phoenix, Las Vegas, Orlando, um, Seattle, and San Jose. That's the, that's the league that we're in from an, from an employment growth standpoint. And it, I think it's interesting that what's happening in this expansion is some of the larger metro areas has been where the activity's been concentrated. And we fall into that category. We've got a great, uh, a great industry mix, uh, low cost relative to some of the neighbors and uh, rapid population growth. A follow-on question that came through is, what's that next bubble to pop? Is in <laughs> um, what I worry about is when the Fed took rates to zero, one of the things that it did was dramatically boosted financial asset prices. You know, look at when the stock market bottomed in, in 2009. Uh, and then you saw this massive run-up in equity prices as people sought you know, sought returns when you couldn't get anything at bank CDs and money market funds, that, that sort of thing. So now you've got central banks all over the world pulling some of that stimulus out or withdrawing that. And so I, I worry about the implications for financial, asset, for financial asset prices. You saw what happened in October. I mean, rates have started, rates have started to rise. You've seen some weakening there. And I think Chairman Powell does not see it as his job to support a certain level of equity prices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's an interesting question here about um, climate change and, and how you think that um, might impact the economic um, changes of the future. You so, you've got lots of long-term, lots of long-term forecasts. You know, you'll see policies put in place, um, but you know, we're not going to know for a long time. And, you know, what we do here is ir irrelevant in the sense if you have things in Southeast Asia going the other, going the other way. Yeah, yeah, right. So here's a question for Graciela. So what do you see as the most important leadership skill to develop in um, your associates that are millennials? 
developing those, those younger millennial folks? Uh, you know, I undertook to, and it's a, this whole year I've been hammering them with grit and resilience. Being gritty and resilience gives you power, gives you the ability to know that whatever comes your way, you're going to be able to stand up and get up and get, go, get going. I tell them, we've, uh, we've read, we've had a book review, I sit with them, we drink wine um, and beer, and we talk about grit and resilience and building up that muscle. If you have it, that's great, you can still improve it. If you don't have it, you can build it. So. Um, I've been uh, really hammering them with that. I, I, it's going to end up being my nickname, I'm sure. Um, and I don't know, you know, one of the issues I, you, know, you kind of don't know is uh, do they hear it? Do they understand it? You know, I have the benefit of 52 years of life, so um, in difficult circumstances, I would say, and, and challenging ones in my career. And I don't know if they hear you as say it, but I think it's important. It's so a question here, Sadie, about delegation and how do you, in a growing business, and you have three different distinct businesses, mm -hmm. how do you determine what are the right uh, tasks and responsibilities to delegate in a business that's evolving and changing? First of all, I don't determine it. We determine it. Mm -hmm. I have a team, um, our leadership team, and we go through what the strategic priorities are for the company first, without, and we all take off our respective roles, and we look at what's best for the company, what's best for the client, how do we get to where our vision is, um, which our vision is achievable, some visions aren't. Ours is very measurable, and it's an achievable thing we're working towards. And then we as a team decide who's going to be accountable for the strategic priorities to get there. Mm -hmm. And they, that democratic process, and we do sticky note voting, and uh, then someone raises their hand, and so, you know, sometimes it's really obvious. Um, who's going to, you know, help us with forecasting? That's going to be my, you know, head of finance. But um, sometimes it's not as obvious, um, and that's I think that that um, accountability of someone raising their hand and, and signing up for it, and then everybody in the room saying, okay, you know, we're going to hold you accountable to that, yeah. is has been an effective way for us to delegate all the way down to the studio level. Mm -hmm. We do it that way. And Kyle, I think about, you know, Sadie mentioned the word forecasting, and one of the questions we had prepared for this group was, how do you navigate forecasting in uncertain times in the future, and what, what's been most successful for you in your business career around that forecasting for growth in a realistic way? The, the businesses that we, man, in manufacturing business, it's, it's, a, it's a GDP business. So monitoring and managing that at each individual business is, uh, has been what GDP will give you. So that, for us, has been fairly easy. What hasn't been easy is in this last cycle here with, uh, with raw material, uh, there, was a, there was a shift because of the tariff action that was unforeseen. There was a, an adjustment to the tariff action, if none of you know this, but at the end of May, we'd had trading partners with NAFTA that had all of a sudden changed. So all of a sudden, our supply chain, for the first time in my career, uh, I ran out of raw material. Uh, hadn't run out for 32 years. Uh, we ran out this year, uh, and so did Thankfully, most of my competitors ran out as well. So that was tumultuous in the marketplace. Um, the other cost driver is, was on the prior question you had was around labor and those items. And, and for us, the biggest thing we're doing is there's going to be less people five, ten years from now they are going to want to do our stuff. I don't the people that are currently with us don't want to do our stuff. So there's going to be more of them. Mm -hmm. 
so it's going to be around automation. And so I, I've spent, I was around the world 12 times last year looking at all the latest automation that's out there. That doesn't mean there's going to be day one we put in a piece of equipment, people are gone. In fact, it's just the opposite. What you're doing is you're taking a lot of the repetitive, uh, cruddy jobs, you're, 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 you're automating that, and you're using a human being to manage that process. So the, the term that's used in Toyota is automation, and it's a, it's a, cal it's a combination between people and automation. Now, you probably will need less, and over time, if we just had natural attrition, there'll never be a layoff in our company. That's not who we are. But it's just over natural attrition and making the job easier. So that should be able to be able to control some of the costs that are talking from the labor, but also from our manufacturing costs and keep us competitive worldwide. Great. Thank you. John, here's a question for you. So what are your projections for construction and housing uh, for 2019 and 2020? Well, the, the housing is a housing. Sorry. Did I do that? That's me. I'm good. Oh, okay. You're good. <laughs> Housing's a tough one because of what's going on on the, on the rate side. As I, as I said, you sort of got three things to worry about. You got rising incomes. Uh, you've got rising interest rates and rising prices. We've already seen signs of house prices weakening. Incomes are going up. The Fed comments yesterday got people excited saying, hey, maybe rates aren't going to go up. The underlying fundamentals of demand on the housing are very strong because from a national perspective, we're not building to keep up with household formation. I mean, household formation was, you know, depressed during the Great Recession, but that's back, and the supply has not responded. And what you're starting to see happen, and people are realizing, hey, you know, land use laws may have something to do with this, uh, and impact fees and that kind of that kind of stuff, making it very difficult to expand supply. The tight labor market, the tariffs hurt the expansion, tariffs on the lumber, that uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but I think the fundamentals are such that I think of housing as plateauing now, not collapsing. Uh, we're not talking about major financial problems. And I think the underlying demand, you know, house, I think, I suspect residential building permits next year uh, will rise, but rise, rise more, more slowly. We've been running about 1.2. They may move up a little bit, maybe to 1.25, again, driven by the underlying demographics. Millennials are running late. You know, family formation, buying houses, that kind of stuff. Right, yeah, well said. So we're, we're coming to the end of our session here, and I want to just encourage you all to fill out the evaluations on your table if you haven't already. And um, that will be, we'll come around and gather those because we're going to put those in a drawing for um, a really nice wine basket with some other goodies inside of it. So if you can complete the, the evaluation as we kind of wrap up our last question and folks will be coming around to collect those, that'd be great. My last question for all of you, really, is how do you develop yourself personally? Um, so what are some of those things that you've done as a CEO to continue your own development? Sadie, why don't you jump in? Uh, the most present thing for me, present, is I, I'm really loving podcasts <laughs> and um, exploring um, how to pay attention on purpose day to day, how to drive my business in a meaningful way, um, that creates happiness and um, really it's more of an introspective practice for me of being mindful mm -hmm. um, as a leader and really seeking out um, people who lead businesses mindfully and figuring out how to do that, how to balance it all. Um, so podcasts, um, go going to retreats, um, learning from other CEOs. I'm part of um, entrepreneur organization mm -hmm. 
um, here in Portland. That's been a tremendous support for me. I have a peer group. We meet every month. We hold each other accountable um, to the woes of being a founder and CEO. Great. Kyle, how about you? I mentioned earlier my involvement with uh, the Toyota production system, spending time around the world, seeing other companies are doing, uh, that are doing that. I travel about 300 days a year, so I travel a lot, and so uh, I, I'm rarely here. Uh, and so that's an important part of my development, is seeing and being either with our team or being in our, in our industry globally. I spend a lot of time, uh, I go to the military academies each year and take training there. It's all based around grit. And, and it's not around talking about it, it's forcing them to do it. So when they come out, they're leading in hostile situations. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the other thing that's really important for me is uh, getting involved on, on boards. My, my next project, what I'm working on, is I'm, I'm part of a for-profit boards and getting on that. Uh, it, it helps me to evaluate other businesses and other industries mm -hmm. to be around really bright people that have done things and look at problems and play in somebody else's sandbox to try and help them out. Uh, I've found that to be really cathartic for, for us, and it forces me to be on point. Uh, and then I do a lot of public speaking. And the reason I do that public speaking is it forces me to be on point of what, what, how would I evaluate our inventory, what we're doing. And if I'm saying something that I wouldn't be embarrassed to say in the company, that that means it's probably something that we need to change in the company. So mm -hmm. that really forces us to kind of do that on a regular basis. Great, very interesting. Graciela. Uh, boy, I read a lot. I certainly attend a lot of uh, trainings, and I keep uh, abreast of changes. And, and I'll dig into, you know, the recent deep dive I did was on culture because we were about to undertake a culture study and what that means. And so I'm, I'm well versed in the lexicon of, of that uh, of that uh, theme. The other thing I do is I've been real purposeful about establishing my own networks, my peer networks. Um, uh, you know, we've got an amazing set of uh, female diverse leaders here in Portland and Seattle, which is, uh, I spend a lot of time in Seattle, so I'm growing those networks. Um, and, and that's been a, a real source of joy and surprise, actually. I didn't think uh, it would be as, uh, as important it is as, as it has been for me to be surrounded by really dynamic, uh, vibrant folks uh, of, all, uh, of all walks. Um, I'm also very much uh, contributing to the community. It's important to me to pick a few things. You know, you can't overextend too much, but I'm the chair of the Washington State Women's Commission currently. I was appointed by the governor just a few months ago, and we're trying to explore how to make changes, um, including my, the, the subgroup that I'm involved in is trying to figure out if, uh, if we're, how we're gonna address the issue of increasing women on boards and diversifying boards, especially for for-profit companies. So if you all got any ideas, I'm all ears. Mm -hmm. But uh, definitely we're working towards that. We've, we're just at the very beginning of that uh, endeavor. We don't, uh, I personally don't think that legislation is the way to go for a whole bunch of different reasons. But short of that, what we can do uh, cooperatively, because mm -hmm. I think our in Oregon and in Washington, Washington State, business can work cooperatively with government to uh, reach desired outcomes. So Great. that's what we're hoping to do. Thank you, Graciela. John, how about you? I just I read. Yeah. I try to read from a variety of perspectives. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of it, I'm sure, over all these years. So wonderful. Thank you all for being a part of this panel. Let's give a round Thank of applause you. for our panelists. Hand it over from here. Good morning. 
My name is Danny DeCharm with Brown & Brown Northwest Insurance. So uh, first of all, to our CEO panelists um, and John, thank you for sharing some of your business insights and the challenges you're facing in your business and some ideas on moving forward for 2019. So thank you. Um, as a little token of appreciation, I believe we have uh, some nice Stoller Pinot Noir wine for you to take home. John, we got you too, don't worry. <laughs> Is it too early? <laughs> five o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks. And um, I believe we've got the last of the evaluation forms coming up here. Thank you. Um, as Ann mentioned, we'll be raffling off a uh, nice gift basket here to the lucky winner. Um, but as we're doing that, again, I just want to say, Thank you all for attending um, on behalf of our hosts, Brown & Brown Northwest, um, Zenium HR, Columbia Bank, and um, Geffen Mesher. We appreciate you all coming and hope you gain some valuable insight. So with that. Here we are. <laughs> DeGay Harris, Dennis Uniform. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Come on up. Thanks again, everybody. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Were you an engineer? What kind of? <laughs> <laughs>